0: Good morning, happy Father's Day. Hooray to all you dads out there. We tip our hats to you. Today is the day, in fact, for those of you dads who are watching right now, let me just say, I have made arrangements. Your wife and kids are gonna make you a big breakfast right after you finish watching the worship service. So uh, that's good news. And the other thing is I'm actually giving you a gift today. You dads out there, for Father's Day, I've decided to make the sermon just a little bit longer today because I know that you guys would appreciate that so much. So. That's my plan for Father's Day. Let's jump right into it. Uh, Let me remind you about our stool, right? We've been talking about this now for a while. We've been talking about what the church is and defining the church. And we started, we said there's four legs to the stool that is the church. And we started with leg number one, which is love. Jesus said that the greatest commandments are love God and love people. We talked a couple weeks about love. And then last week, we talked a little bit about this second leg, which is unity, the last Weeks we covered that. Man, I wish we had about eight more weeks to talk about that, but we don't. I'm moving right on and we're to the third leg today. Leg number three first love, then unity, and leg number three worship. And so I want to just invite you to join me today in thinking about this issue of worship. Let's start with a question When you hear the word worship, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Now, don't give me like a a carefully uh, crafted definition. I mean the first thing that comes to your mind. You hear the word worship, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? In fact, tell somebody there in the living room with you, if you're watching with somebody, tell them, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? If you're by yourself, maybe write it down, jot it down, or make a mental note. Mental notes don't last so well for me, so you might want to jot it down, but... What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of worship? Because we all have our preconceived ideas about worship. And, and where do we get those ideas? Essentially, we get them from our experience, right? It's, it's what we're used to. It's what we've been taught. It's what we've been sort of led into. We think of worship in certain ways. And uh, I've been getting a real uh, master class on worship for the last 20 years of my life because God has allowed me to travel from one nation to another, one culture to another, and worship with God's people all around the world. So, you know, you're worshiping in Central America. It is very different than if you're worshiping in Africa. It's very different than if you're worshiping in Europe and very different than if you're worshiping, say, in China or, or Japan or in the Middle East. In all of these places, there are different traditions and people think of worship differently and they approach worship differently. For some of you, you were taught that, that worship involves reverence and quiet and maybe lighting candles. Or maybe, uh, maybe you grew up thinking worship is really about prayer or, or maybe for you, um, worship is always about singing. That when you think worship, you think songs. We just finished a time of singing and, and musical worship. And maybe that's what you think of. I don't know what it's like for you, but uh, I've been in different places where it was very different. Right here in the United States, I was in a, in a church one time where you know, they, they did a couple of hymns and then it was time to take the offering. They took the offering and after the offering was brought up and presented, they just said, you know what? we think God wants you to do better than this. Let's take another offering. And they sent the people out again and the ushers went up and down the aisles and they took another offering. When they came back, the pastor looked at it and said, come on, I know that God is putting it on your heart to really give sacrificially. Let's do another offering. They did five straight offerings, five. And I was freaking out and I was like, what in the world is this? This is crazy. And then I talked to somebody about it afterwards that was used to going to that church. I said, what is with the five offerings? And they said, yeah, that's kind of our tradition. We always do it that way. And I said, well, uh, what do you mean you always do it that way? How do you, uh, what, what do you do? And they said, well, we just hold a little back the first time and we hold a little back the second time. And by the fifth time, we put all of our offering into the plate. And I was just like, that is so strange. But that was their tradition. That's what they were used to. That seemed normal to them. I remember I was up in Central California one time. Uh, a friend of mine was getting married and I was gonna be the best man. We, we go into this church and uh, it was a charismatic church and I, I didn't have a background in the charismatic church. We go into this church where we're gonna have the wedding. We're doing the wedding rehearsal. And I noticed that on the ends of the pews, on the side of the uh, pews, there are these little folded up lightweight blankets on every pew and it's the middle of summer. And so I said, dude, what's with the blankets? People get cold in here. Is air conditioning strong? What's up with that? They said, no, but when, you know, it's a pretty conservative church, uh, the the men wear ties, the women wear dresses. That's kind of how we come on Sunday mornings. And And when women get slain in the spirit and they fall out on the ground and they're shaking on the ground, the ushers just come and take this blanket and throw it over them just for modesty's sake. And I was like, wow, I would have never dreamed of that. I had no idea that that's what was done in a lot of places. So we all have our opinions, right, about what's normal, what's appropriate, what is worship. So let me just offend you right here at the beginning and say this. I don't care what your opinion is. In fact, I, I don't care what my opinion is. The only opinion that matters on this issue is God's opinion, right? Because all worship is for Him. So let's go to the Bible. <clears throat> let's give God a chance to talk to us about what He says worship is and what worship is all about, what it's really intended to be. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to open to the book of Romans. It's in your New Testament. It's right after the book of Acts. So go to Romans, and I want you to go to Romans chapter 12, one of the great chapters in Scripture. And in Romans chapter 12, we're going to find God beginning to teach us a little bit about worship. Now, if if you're familiar with the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters really deal with doctrine. They talk about man's sinfulness and his inability to save himself and how uh, the gospel works and how salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And we get all of this doctrine. And then we get to chapter 12. And chapter 12 begins with the word therefore. And it's referring back to all, these, all of this stuff is true because all of this is true. Therefore, Paul says... we have a tendency to separate spiritual things from practical things. So spiritual things on this hand, that's, that's prayer, that's a church, that's Bible reading, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And then practical things on this hand, that's like, you know, my work life, my family life, exercise, finances, all that kind of stuff. So, so spiritual things on this side... And practical things on this side. And what Paul is saying to us in Romans 12 is he's saying, listen, you've got to take spiritual things and practical things and you've got to bring them together. He tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It doesn't get any more practical than that. And he says, and that is your spiritual service of worship. Paul's not calling for a feeling of worship. He's not, he's not um, alluding to an attitude of worship. God's not looking for some kind of religious ritual that we perform in a church building and we call that worship. He's telling us to present our bodies, our practical lives, as a living sacrifice. It doesn't get any more practical than that. The people of God, as well as the pagan people of Rome at the time that Paul was writing this they were very familiar with the idea of a dead sacrifice. You know, sacrifices are are used in all kinds of religious ceremonies. And the Jews were used to having animals that had to be killed and their blood was offered as a sacrifice. Uh, The pagans were used to also killing animals and making sacrifices to appease the gods. Even sometimes human beings were sacrificed. And so this idea that, that there's such a thing as a dead sacrifice makes sense. But in Christ, we're called to a much higher level of worship. A much more um, profound sacrifice. A much more costly sacrifice. We're not being asked to just die for the glory of God. Comparatively, that would be easy. We're actually being commanded to live for the glory of God. Much more challenging. It's an ongoing sacrifice. It's a repeated decision. It's a life of worship. And that is intensely practical. Everything about us is to be dedicated to worship. We are to be a living sacrifice. But it's been famously said over and over again that the biggest problem with a living sacrifice is that they keep crawling off the altar. And, and that has certainly been true in my life. I wonder if it's been true in yours. I've been mean, so many times where I've had a moment with God. I, the Lord has convicted me by his Holy Spirit of some sin in my life. I've confessed it and made right with God. Or, or maybe I've just had an amazing time of worship and complete surrender to God. And I, I'm just so sure that, boy, this is it. This is what it's really going to look like for me to, to move ahead, and, and I'm devoted to Christ with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I go out, get in my car, get on the freeway, some jerk cuts me off, and it's over, right? It is hard to stay on the altar. It is hard to live in that, in that position of perpetual worship, perpetual sacrifice. So what does real Worship, a life of worship. What does that look like? Okay, Jesus and his disciples, right? They have to travel and they decide to go through Samaria. And as they're traveling through Samaria, they come to a very famous spot in Jewish history. It's Jacob's well. That's the well that was literally dug by Jacob and his sons, you know, a thousand years before. And, and that well is still there in Samaria. And so Jesus stops at Jacob's well to rest, and he sends the other disciples into town to buy some food, right? And as they go off into food and into town and leave uh, Jesus, um, in John chapter four, we pick up the story. So take your Bibles again and turn to the book of John, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And go to John chapter four. and we're going to pick this up in John four verse seven. Jesus is there at the well. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that says to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She was a very insightful lady. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus meets her at the well, and she's surprised that he even talks to her. First of all, as a man, he, he probably, it's not socially acceptable for him to even address a woman who's by herself out in public. Secondly, he's a Jew. She's shocked to even see a Jew in Samaria. Usually the Jews walked around Samaria. They wouldn't even get the dust of Samaria on their feet because they hated the Samaritans so much. And here's this this Jewish rabbi and this Samaritan woman and he's treating her with respect. He's treating her with dignity and he's talking to her and he asks her for a drink and she's shocked by this. And he begins to talk to her about living water and she's confused. And finally, she says, listen, if there's a way that I won't have to come back here every day in the heat and draw this water, I'm down with that. Give me that water. And then he quickly turns it on her and says, why don't you go get your husband and bring him back? And that's the point where her head drops. And she, she mumbles under her breath, I, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, I know. You've had five husbands. And the one you're with now is not even your husband. In other words, she's got a shameful past, especially in that society. For a woman who had had five husbands was akin to being a prostitute. And now she's living with a man who is not her husband. And she's talking to a rabbi. And it's humiliating. And Jesus gets her to this place. And finally, she looks up at him and says, you must be a prophet. Now, she doesn't want to talk about what he wants to talk about, which is her sinful life, right? And, and how she needs this living water. So she changes the subject. Pick it up in verse 20. John chapter 4, verse 20. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus brings up her sin. She doesn't want to talk about her sin, so she changes the subject. She's like, hey, since you're a prophet, what do you make of this whole argument about where we should be worshiping? It would be like if if you met a police officer right now, and you you said, oh, wow, wow. Hey, since you're a police officer, what do you make of all of these protests and all of these issues with the police right now? Or, or maybe if you met a doctor and uh, you, you might say, hey, since you're a doctor, what do you make of this whole COVID-19 thing? I mean, are, are we going to come out of this? Well, how, how contagious is this thing? You, you, would, you would bring the subject back to his area of expertise. Well, this guy's a prophet. And so she says, what do you think? about the nature of worship. I've always been taught that I was supposed to worship in this mountain, but I know you Jews worship in the temple. What's the deal with that? Well, you have to understand, first of all, Samaritans and Jews, they, they worship the same God. But the reason the Jews hated the Samaritans is because, is because centuries ago, the Samaritans had intermixed with pagans. And so you had Jewish faith and religion along with pagan religion. And you get this sort of hodgepodge religion and God had warned them against that. And so Samaritans, they believed in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. And they also knew that uh, Jacob had built an altar on Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritans thought that was the place that God ordained worship to take place. In other words, you know, that, you know that old question? Um, it's, it's kind of a story that preachers love to tell about uh, the lady who's making the pot roast, right? And, and her daughter's there watching her make it. And before she puts it in the pot, she slices about two inches off the end of the pot roast and throws that meat away and puts the rest into the pot. And her daughter says, Mom, why do you cut the end off the pot roast? And the mom says, you know... I've just always done it that way. That's how my mom did it. I I don't know. Let's call grandma. And she calls grandma and says, Hey, mom, why do we cut the end off the pot roast? And grandma says, Because my pot wasn't big enough. And yet she's been cutting the end off the pot roast all the time, even though now she had a pot that was big enough. So... The the Samaritans, they looked to Jacob. Jacob was the guy who had originally cut the end off the pot roast when it comes to worship. But the Jews, they looked to Solomon. Solomon had built this magnificent temple in Jerusalem. He built this spectacular place to worship. And they figured that was the acceptable place to worship. For them, Solomon had originally cut the end off the pot roast. Both groups had the same problem. The form of worship had become more important than the heart of worship. Tradition had become the guiding force so that their worship was really diminished and it was something less than worship. And boy, as Christians, we face that same challenge. We love our traditions. Even those of us who are progressive and we love to do new things, we love to do new things in the way we like to do them. And so we hold to traditions. Like I said, maybe maybe you were taught that, that worship should be done in reverence and quiet. I remember the first time I went to Africa to uh, be with people in Africa and and the worship service there, everyone immediately got up and started dancing. Dancing is every bit as much a traditional part of worship in Africa as singing is. For us, we sing. For them, they sing and dance. And the thought that you would not dance when you sing is bizarre to them. And I remember being in a group of African kids, and and I'm standing up and worshiping, and they are dancing around, and they're looking at me like I've got three heads. And finally, they come and grab me, and they start moving me. Now you have not seen anything until you have seen a fat middle-aged bald white guy doing his moves among a bunch of African kids as we worship. Now don't get me wrong, I got moves, right? I know. Watch, I can. I, I, you know, the key is you got to bite your lip, right? Because that's how they know you're serious. I had the moves. They didn't like my moves. <laughs> they were entertained by my moves. But I had to learn to dance when I was in Africa, to worship. And when I was in China, it was the exact opposite. I was meeting with people who had been their whole Christian lives in underground church. For them, the more intense their worship became, the quieter it got. They had been taught To worship quietly and for them somehow quietness and reverence meant the same thing. So in one continent you have people who are exuberant and dancing because that's what worship means to them. And in another continent you have people who are quiet and reverent because that's what worship means to them. Tradition can easily become a guiding force for us instead of the Spirit of God who calls us to truly worship. Listen, worship is all about the heart. Jesus meets this woman at the well and he feels compassion for her. He wanted her to have a life of real worship. She was somehow trying to find her way, going through the motions and not connecting with God. Her problem was not that she didn't understand religious traditions; she understood. Her problem was that she lived a sinful life apart from Jesus because she didn't have a relationship with God. And by the way, Christians, can I remind us all for a second that when you didn't know God, you lived that way too. Lost people live like lost people. That's what we should expect. Jesus was not thrown off by her sin. He didn't reject her because of her sin and that's what she was used to. In fact, her sin was his whole reason for being in Samaria in the first place. I'll take it further. Her sin was his whole reason for coming to earth in the first place. And your sin was his reason for coming to earth. And my sin was his reason for coming to earth. God is not put off by your sin. He keeps being drawn to you because your sin shows your need for him. She knew nothing about true worship. Her life had been focused on herself. But Jesus comes along with this different story. Jesus comes to offer her life purpose along with your life and my life. And here's the thing. Your life was never meant to be about you. Yeah, I know that stings a little. Let me say it again. Your life was never meant to be about you. Your life is meant to be about God. We sometimes get that backwards. We sometimes think that our life is about us and God is here to help us along the way. God is here to give us what we want or ask for or need. But in truth, our lives are about Him, and we are here to bring Him glory. We're the church. We exist to bring glory and honor to God. I want you to picture, especially in Europe, these old cathedrals, these spectacular cathedrals, these church buildings... And, and they were built with this unbelievable architecture always reaching toward the sky, toward a pinnacle. If you go inside above the altar, there's always these vaulted ceilings that are reaching up and, and drawing our eye heavenward. The architecture of those church buildings was designed to draw people's eyes, to draw people's hearts, their minds toward heaven. Well, guess what? We are the church. We exist to draw people's eyes and hearts and minds toward heaven. We exist for his glory. If you are a Christian, life is worship. But we get that here, but we don't work it out here. One of my favorite quotes is from a book called Ablaze With His Glory by Del Fesenfeld Jr. And, And he said this, In America, we worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. Wow. In America, we worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. Worship for us is too often just about our entertainment, our enjoyment, our fun, our happiness. And God says, that's not worship. It's almost like worship for us is an afterthought, and it's... and it's. Uh, judged by how much we enjoyed it. Guys, the measuring stick for whether your worship is great is not whether you enjoyed it. It's whether God enjoyed it. Worship is our reason for existing. You and I are meant to be a living sacrifice, both personally as individuals and corporately as a church. What is the church? Among other things, the church is the collective body of worshipers. Who live every moment to bring God glory in our work life, in our family life, with our bodies, with our finances, in our political choices, with our opinions, in our behaviors, taking the, the sacred and the practical and meshing them together. Your life is a living sacrifice. Your body is to be offered as a living sacrifice. That's your spiritual service of worship. Your life is not about you. Your life's about him. And I don't say that to be a wet blanket. I say that to set you free to experience life to the fullest. Only a life of worship will ever lead to true fulfillment. Jesus said it this way, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's calling us to be a living sacrifice. What does it mean to be a worshiper? It means to be a living sacrifice. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It means that my whole life exists For the one singular purpose of bringing glory to the King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who made the heavens and the earth. And the one who set me free from sin and gave me eternal life. In everything that I say and do to bring him glory. And what does it mean to be the church? It means that collectively we exist to honor God. And point the eyes and the hearts of others toward him so that they might honor him as well. And if we do that, he promises that we will find our lives in him. The woman at the well had been trying to make her life about herself. But then she met Jesus and her heart was changed and her life became a life of worship. Those who worship God will worship him in spirit and truth. What is your life about? Let's pray together. God, we just want to say thank you for being so good and so faithful that we have life because of you and that we have spiritual life in you. You are our everything, Lord. And God, we confess that we're so easily distracted by shiny things. Uh, we're, we're caught up in so many of the things that the world Counts valuable. And we sometimes judge our lives in terms of how much we're enjoying it and not in terms of how much you're enjoying it. But God, give us new perspective, give us new hearts. We cry out with the psalmist that you would replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, that we might worship you again in our work life, in our marriages in our friendships, with our finances, with the practical details of our lives. May we be true worshipers, for we are your church. May the world see us and have their eyes pointed to heaven. Lord, we ask these things in the precious, precious name of Jesus. Amen.